Hey everyone, you're listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast with fiction author and national security expert Natasha Bajma. Join me as I interview subject matter experts about weapons of mass destruction and emerging technologies and authors who write about them. We'll discuss the ethical, societal, and technical aspects of science and technology so that you can tell great stories and still get the details right. Welcome to episode number 30 of the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. My name is Natasha Bajma, aka WMD Girl on Twitter. I'm a fiction author, national security expert, and your host for this podcast. If you're interested in science and technology, in reading good fiction, or want to write fiction based on technology, you're in the right place. Before we get started, just a few notes. The views expressed on this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the National Defense University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. The Authors of Mass Destruction podcast is proud to be part of the Authors on the Air global radio network. Check us out at authorsontheair.com. If you enjoy my podcast and want me to keep it up, I hope you'll become a patron for only a few dollars a month at Patreon. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajima. For only a few dollars a month, you can get access to my new podcast. It's called Project Gecko after the second novel in the Larry Kingsley, Kingsley series. Each episode, I'll be giving a brief, brief tech news intro and then reading two chapters from the book. Personal update, um, I apologize for being a week late with this episode. I started out the month with a nasty sinus infection, which lasted for about two weeks. I'm still coughing and my voice is a bit scratchy, but I wanted to get this amazing interview with Tracy Walder, who is a former CIA staff operations officer and FBI special agent, wanted to get it out as soon as possible. Just a quick note, I will be taking off the next four weeks over the holidays on the podcast, taking a break. Um, I hope you enjoy the holidays and I'll see you back in January. Before we get to the interview, let's take a look at the news headlines. This week, I was particularly interested in the article titled, Silicon Valley is listening to your most intimate moments, published on Bloomberg.com on December 11. So by now, most of us are aware, maybe even comfortable with the notion of being tracked on the internet. Soon after we Google something, for example, we are bombarded with relevant ads on our Facebook newsfeed. I remember when it first happened to me, I was a little spooked out by it, but I admit, I think I've become a little bit more um, comfortable with it. But what about all the audio data we know companies are collecting through the microphones on our devices like Alexa or Siri on our smartphones? Audio data isn't immediately useful. It has to be transcribed before the information can be plugged into most data analytics and become searchable. And transcription has to be done by human. It costs a lot of money. Um, So I've just assumed thus far that companies haven't done anything with the data. Well, I was wrong. Um, We are training the next generation speech speech recognition AI. And I guess if we use, uh, if if I had read the user agreement a little bit more closely uh, for Alexa or for for Siri on my iPhone, I would have um, suspected this. So in this article, um, Amazon and other companies are paying temps to transcribe our audio into usable text data to do essentially that, to train their speech recognition uh, software. Essentially, that makes economic sense. The value of Alexa is its capacity to recognize and respond to human speech. But what about our privacy rights um, and how are those being protected? Well, if you read the user agreements, you'll see that we have in some ways um, sacrificed our privacy rights. So for Siri, for example, Apple states that the voice data might be recorded and analyzed to improve Siri. But Did we really think that humans were going to listen to us to transcribe it? I'm not so sure if we would have made that leap. 
And if you read the user agreement for Alexa, Amazon goes even further, claiming that they have the right to retain your audio recordings indefinitely. So the day after this article came out, I experienced a bit of a shell shock. Um, last week, I gave two lectures on artificial intelligence over Zoom to Tracy Walder's class of high school students at Hockaday School in Dallas. My iPhone was sitting next to me and Facebook was open on my phone, but I didn't think anything of it. During one of my lectures, I made a joke about wanting to genetically modify my metabolism so I could eat more donuts. I hardly eat donuts ever or talk about them. There's no information on my Facebook about my love for donuts. Two hours after I gave this lecture, however, an ad for donuts appeared in my Facebook feed. I went to check my privacy settings for my microphone and sure enough, I turned it on for Facebook Messenger. I have since corrected that issue. Is this a coincidence? So part of me wants to believe that it is just a coincidence and I'm scared about what happened on my Facebook feed, but should I be that naive? I'm not so sure. All right, let's get to the interview. Welcome to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. I'm here today with Tracy Walder. She spent the past 10 years as a high school teacher at the Hockaday School in Dallas, Texas, where she's developed her own curriculum on foreign policy and terrorism designed to encourage women to pursue careers in foreign affairs. Before teaching, she acquired seven years of government experience in national security, foreign affairs, and international policy, working as a CIA staff operations officer and a special agent at the FBI. She has recently co-authored a memoir about her experiences tracking some of the most notorious terrorists involved in the 9-11 attacks. It's called The Unexpected Spy and set to release on February 25th, 2020. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So the first question that everyone probably um, asks you is, why did you get interested in working for the CIA? So my interest um, in working for the CIA was, was actually cultivated through a lot of my early life. Uh, my parents really enjoyed traveling, and that was something that we had always done. So I always had an interest in overseas and other countries. But really, what piqued my interest the most was in 1997, I watched Peter Bergen's interview with Osama bin Laden. Um, and for me, I just I can recall that as being a turning point in terms of my interest. I am Jewish. And so one of the things that I found captivating about that interview was sort of bin Laden's sheer hatred um, of my religion. And I think is a very naive sort of 19, 20 year old, that was something I couldn't understand. So I started just to sort of do more and more research into terrorism and found it to be fascinating. Um, and that's really what piqued my interest in sort of the event that was the catalyst for me. So I read in your book that um, you were at a career fair and you saw that the CIA table was looking for history majors. And so you walked up. Is that kind of how it un unraveled from there? That's exactly how it unraveled. Um, most of my life, I've, I've always had a, a, a passion for history. Um, it's something I've always enjoyed. And I think for me, a lot of people used to give me a lot of flack for having history as a major. I used to get, you know, what are you going to do with that? Uh, how are you going to make money with that? It was really everyone's question. And at that time at the school that I was at, uh, a lot of the career industry folks would come and, and set up sort of on our main thoroughfare. And there happened to be a table there that day that said that they were looking for history and English majors. And 
my friend who I was with at the time sort of was like, oh, look, there's something you can do with it. (laughs) (laughs) It went on from there. I mean, who knew? I mean, generally speaking, when you think about a career at the CIA, you don't necessarily link history and the CIA together. Although if you read the Tom Clancy novels and Jack Ryan, I think he was a historian. Um, So I guess that that jives with what we think about in pop culture. It's so funny because... um, I also never envisioned myself working at the CIA and I was at the Monterey Institute of International Studies in California. And um, before going to that school, I'd never heard really of weapons of mass destruction, but they have a particular emphasis there. And so when I arrived on campus and everybody was studying weapons of mass destruction, I was kind of interested. So I started studying it. And then of course the CIA came recruiting to our school. We're one of the number one kind of sources um, for the CIA. I'm like, yeah, that sounds like it could be cool. And so I threw my hat in the ring as well. So it's it's interesting how that happens. Of course, I did not work for the CIA. So it just is. <laughs> let's so let's talk about the next step. So you submit your application, then what happens? Um, I submitted my application and to be honest with you, I, I did not think that they would, would call me. I, I had good grades. Um, it just wasn't something I really I, I did take it seriously. I just didn't think they would call me and to be completely honest with you, I think I had forgotten that I had applied. Um, and they, they called my my room, um, and I believe it was my roommate who answered my phone. Um, and the next step was that I had to sort of do a group interview situation at a large hotel that was in LA. And it seems to me like they sort of took everyone from the LA area and sort of put them there that day and just banged out interviews all at once. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once I found that I had sort of passed that point. Um, Then they flew me out to DC to conduct the remainder of sort of the background process. Yeah. So a lot of my audience, they're writers and they probably want to write about working at the CIA. So talk them through what happens during the interview, the polygraph, that whole grueling process. I have some comments as well. So it was um, an incredibly grueling process. And I think I was extremely young. I was only 20. I've always been very young for my grades. So this was in between my junior and my senior year. So I was incredibly young, so much so that my parents didn't feel comfortable with me going out there by myself. My mom did come with me. Um, It was extremely grueling. Um, I believe the first thing I had to do was the physical. I don't know if they allow outside entities to do it anymore, but I had to have a physical there. If you fail the physical, they will not tell you why you failed. You, you sign a thing saying that you really can't ask, which is a little bit scary, obviously. Um, and then from there, I had to take uh, tests, um, multiple choice tests, critical thinking tests, problem solving tests. And that was a full day, sort of eight, nine hours, if you will, of that. Uh, the day after that, uh, I remember I had the polygraph. Um, for me, that was the most difficult thing and probably the point where I almost I guess, you know, through the proverbial hat in the ring. Um, It was eight hours of sheer emotional turmoil. Um, For me, uh, my problem, I guess, was that my polygrapher had a really hard time understanding how I had never tried a drug ever in my life. Um, And that was the truth. I had not. Uh, But I tend to be somewhat of a high energy, anxious person. So I I think he was probably getting some inconclusive um, output on the polygraph. And at the end of it, he said, you're going to need to come back tomorrow. And I was just devastated, obviously. Um, So I went back to my hotel and um, I just remember calling my recruiter saying, I'm done. 
I'm, I'm not going back. I'm done. I'm not doing this again. This is horrible. And I, he called back and was like, no, you need to do, you've gotten this far. You've gotten this far. You've gotten this far. And so I went to sleep, but obviously didn't really sleep that night. I went back the next day and he just kept going at it. And finally he told me he was going to step out. Um, and at that point I fell asleep in the chair because I, I think I was just, I was exhausted, emotionally just exhausted. Um, and it was so hard for me to understand how I was telling the truth, but it wasn't registering. And I fell asleep and he came back maybe half an hour later, 45 minutes later and said, you know, we're going to, it's still inconclusive. We're going to go ahead and pass you because of the fact that you had fallen asleep. Um, and I think either I passed or he was telling me that they were able to gauge for my reaction, that I wasn't nervous or anything like that. When he left, I, I fell asleep. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so the day after that, um, I had to meet, they had us meet one-on-one -on -one with a psychologist um, and they sort of asked us questions about our past. Um, so that was sort of my process. I believe it was like about three or four days um, that I was Yeah, there. I actually went through that process as well. And I had as much trouble as you did on the polygraph. And I think it's because I have like, I'm just super anxious. I yeah. also had not done any drugs and that was a big problem for the polygrapher. He's like, just, you know, just confess. I'm like, but I haven't. <laughs> That's so and, interesting that we had a similar. Yeah. So I, I had to go back as well. So after about four or five hours, I don't know how long it was. It was ridiculous. You're in this windowless room. You're hooked yes. up to machines. Yes. You're super sensitive about what's going on. You obviously are there because you want the job and you think you might not get the job because like you said, you're telling the truth, but for some reason it's not working out. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of thinking, boy, I really suck at the polygraph thing. I'm not going to really like fool the polygraph. And, and, um, so yeah, I had to come back and, and he basically told me, make a list of all the things that you think you've done or that you think are wrong and we're going to go over them tomorrow. And um, so oh we did that. We were going over every single little thing I thought I did wrong in my entire life. And so there's only one person who knows all of those things and that's the calligrapher. <laughs> and then he just kind of got frustrated and he was like, okay, so we're going to have you lie now. I don't know if he made you lie, but he made me lie. He said, basically, he drew a number and put it on the wall. And he said, um, so, so I'm going to tell you that that, that, that number is a three, but it's a two or, or no, he just made me lie. I can't remember exactly how it went down. And then basically to, to compare. And so I passed with, um, uh, some sort of reservation or something I had to go before a board, I guess then. So I didn't pass in the room. So I didn't know. I didn't know what was going to happen. And eventually I got um, a letter that I was looking for actually yesterday. Um, I wanted to dig it out and show it to you that told me I was not suitable for employment with the CIA <laughs> and they wouldn't tell me why. And I could maybe FOIA it at some point. And, and I've been like, it's been this like issue with me. Like whenever I meet friends who work the CIA, I'm like, okay, they told me I'm not suitable. I'm really upset about this. You are suitable, I promise. And they're like, yeah, you are. It's just their form letter. I'm like, yeah, but I never applied again because I was like, you know. 
Anyway, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. You know, in the end, things work out the way they're supposed to. Um, and um, in in reading your book, um, I think they worked out the way they're, they were supposed to. Um, so before we get started into kind of your your experience at the CIA, I want to talk a little bit about titles. You became a staff operations officer, and in novel writers have a hard time understanding what to call their characters. Right. What is a staff operations officer? So the interesting thing, just to back up for a second, if you don't mind, is yeah, sure. um, what I hear the most sometimes um, at the, you know, about the CIA is, oh, so you were an agent? You were an agent. You were an agent. And that's not correct. Um, obviously, the FBI, yes, I was an agent. But um, CIA doesn't have agents. That's kind of not how we work. Um, another sort of myth maybe that I'd love to like dispel, if you don't mind, is sure. A lot of times what I hear people saying is, oh, well, if you are on the operation side, which is, I guess, known as the dark side, which is what I was in, then that must be the best. And there isn't a best. Um, our people in our intelligence group um, who are the analysts have PhDs and things that I can't even comprehend. Um, so they're all equal and they're all um, amazing. Um, they just serve different purposes, if you will. And so for me, I was on the operation side or the dark side, which is sort of where human intelligence collection lives. And so within that, there's sort of, I don't know if it's changed now, but there's three clear cut kind of paths that you can take. Um, the first one is a CMO or collections management officer. And they are the people that take all of the information and put it in reports and kind of get it out there, all the raw human in information. Operations officers or OOs, those are sort of your quintessential people going out there to recruit human assets and get them to sort of spy on their own countries. Mm -hmm. And then staff operations officers, what we are in charge of is kind of coordinating special operations that are occurring in our divisions. Now, for us, uh, SOOs were extremely um, new. Uh, I was one of the first ones when I had started there. Mm -hmm. They were implemented because the CIA at that point in time was moving towards being into centers versus sort of the Europe branch, the Asia branch, they were moving into like counter-proliferation center, counter-narcotics center, counter-terrorism center. And so if you were in a center, they had Sioux positions available. And since I was in the counter-terrorism center, um, I was Sioux and they needed people to be more responsive, meaning we didn't serve sort of these um, clear-cut two-year tours overseas, which most operations officers do. They need us to be more flexible, meaning it's three months here, three months there, more responsive sort of to what's going on. So that's, I hope I answered your question. Kind no, of. no, that's good. And now I realize I totally messed up. I've called my um, CIA guy a senior case officer. That's okay. That's a case. Okay. A case officer is correct. Okay. Oh, good. Thank God. I'm like, I, cause I, I was looking, you know, doing all sorts of research and then, um, um OOs are case yeah. officers. Sweet. All right. He, and Got he's it. Work, yeah, he's working here in the U S but, um, so oh. working with four nationals here. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Sweet. But I, well, I didn't totally mess up because Jack yeah. Ryan just came out the, um, Tom Clancy, right. Jack Ryan series and they totally screwed up in the first yes. episode in the first season. They's like called him an agent. And I'm just like, that's one of my pet peeves. <laughs> and they even did a little stint about it. Like where, oh, so you're an agent, right? Yeah, nobody knows that's, that's what we're really called. And I'm just like. <laughs> so, but you are correct. A case officer is correct. Okay, but. sweet. 
All right, I didn't totally screw up. Okay, so let's let's talk about 9-11. So I think everybody who was both living at that time, but also old enough to understand what happened, um, remembers where they were. And I was in Germany. I was on a one-year uh, fellowship overseas. We were taking a tour of the city. It's called Aachen in northern Germany. And we're six hours ahead of New York and um, Washington. And so it was about 3 p.m. or so when we heard um, the reports come in over the radio and they were in German because we were in Germany and I'm fluent in German, but the reports came over and said in German, two towers have collapsed. So that's when I heard, I didn't hear about the towers getting hit. I heard once the towers had collapsed already, which wasn't long afterward. But anyway, um, so I'm like, I, I, I heard the sentence and I could not understand it. Like, I was just like, what? You know, probably like just as, as you know, if you're seeing it and you're like, that can't even be. And so what really struck me about your book is that I felt, you know, shock, heartbreak for my country, um, pain for those who had lost um, loved ones. But what struck me about your recollection is your feelings of guilt. And I, I want you to talk a little bit about that because you were already at the CIA at the time and how, what that personal experience was like for you on 9-11. I think for all of us that were working in the counterterrorism center that day, I think there will always be a sense of guilt. Um, it was interesting because I was actually just talking to my students today about the presidential daily briefs that were declassified sort of surrounding the information that Bush would have had leading up to 9-11. And uh, I believe it's the August 6, 2001 PDB. And I showed it to them and they're, I, they looked at sort of the raw intelligence that was in there and they were like, well, how could you have possibly known? You know, how could, it's so vague, like how can you know? And they're right. Um, you know, it's always easy to be a Monday morning quarterback and I could have done this, I should have done that, and this should have worked better, and these two agencies should have communicated better. Um, but I think that we will always feel that we should have done more to stop it. I think even once I turned on my kind of closed circuit TV and saw that second plane hit the World Trade Center, I'm not a hundred percent sure that I even thought this is bin Laden this is a terrorist attack. I don't even know that that's what went through my mind at first because it was so far beyond something that we could fathom. And so much of our emphasis was overseas. Um, and I think what it did do on, on a positive note was focused, forced us to look inward and realize that the U.S. is not impenetrable, right? And we have to start paying attention to the threats that are here um, as well and the threats to the United States. And I think that was maybe a piece of good things that came out of it, but I still struggle with the guilt that I feel over it. Even today, um, I can't really watch memorials about it. I can't listen to uh, the phone calls without having sort of some kind of reaction um, about it. And I don't want to deprive my students of that opportunity. So I let them listen to them and then I sort of step outside and they let me know um, when they're done. But I tell them that I struggle with it because I think that's something that they need to know. Um, and they need to know that the people involved were human and this is not something that we wanted to happen or willed to happen. Yeah, I just, I can't imagine because I mean, I felt such emotion as an American um, overseas and I felt such a desire to serve my country 
and to get the sons of bitches who did this. Excuse my French folks. Sorry, I just went there. Um, um, I just felt this incredible anger um, in those moments. And um, yeah, I went to Washington and got my career at the Department of Defense. So, you know, I was motivated in that way. But um, to it was your job to track the terrorists, the training camps, right, that, that bin Laden was running at the time. And so, you know, to have missed this, I think, would feel extremely personal. And I think it's something I still, um, a, a lot of, uh, an issue I struggle with is sort of um, talking about my emotions, talking about how I feel in like complex and difficult situations. And I think because something like that happened to me at such a young age, I was 22, I believe at the time, that it really stifled because obviously I didn't have time to be sad, right? I didn't have time to wallow in how I felt. You know, I had to, as you said, get those sense of bitches, right? <laughs> So that was my job. And so I turned off a lot of that. And I think fortunately or unfortunately, depending on the different trials I've had in my life, I'm not super great uh, to this day at sort of addressing complex emotional issues that I feel because I've had to turn them off so quickly to sort of get down to business, if you will. Yeah. You know, I was, I had an interview with two cops and we were talking about how they would respond to an incident that might involve WMD because they would be the first responders. And we were talking about, it, it takes a certain kind of personality to be in this space, to think about natural security, to think about scenario, life and death scenarios. And it requires, I think, uh, an uh, ability to compartmentalize emotions. And I'm really good at doing that as well. And so in, in the moment, in an accident, in a crisis, I shut down emotionally. There's no emotion. There's like, we got to get this job done. We got to get it done now. And that's probably where you were. And you probably were there for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. So most people you have a crisis situation, maybe a car accident, that, that those moments are very, very finite, but you had to chase Bin Laden. You had to chase him down and it took months, years, decades. And um, so that can, yeah, I can see how that has an emotional impact. So another really cool thing about um, your book and your experience, and I can't imagine, is what happened right after 9-11 with the vault and um, the people that you met <laughs> in the vault and the people who you talk to on a daily basis. So why don't you tell us about some of those people? So what was so surprising to me, to be honest with you about that vault chapter is I, uh, so obviously I submitted my book to the CIA's publication review board um, to be, and so it will be published with redactions, but I thought for sure I was going to have to take that entire chapter out. Um, I did not. Uh, surprisingly, there's some uh, redactions uh, with it. Um, I think kind of what we were discussing before uh, kind of in a way, what was cathartic for me is I was able to go out and chase them. If you it was through virtual means, but I was able to actually do something about it, which may have been somewhat healing for me emotionally. I don't, I don't know. I haven't reflected on that. Um, but because what I was doing was so new, um, we constantly had uh, high up individuals in our government in there all the time, um, wanting to know sort of what we were doing, uh, what we were looking at that day, who we were chasing. Um, and it was, uh, it was a very interesting experience. I, I think for a second, I would be starstruck by the person that would walk in the room, but then I realized, okay, I need to, to focus on what I'm doing. And you almost sort of drown them out. Um, after so you basically you're drowning out George W. Bush, Annalisa <laughs> Rice, Colin Powell, Dick um, Cheney. It, was, it wasn't like that. Um, <laughs> you would get noticed that they were coming, 
meaning like they didn't stay in there from, you know, my full 10 hour shift. Yes. But sometimes (laughs) Tenet would stay in there. Uh, Tenet, we became just very comfortable with after a while. He is that kind of person. He was incredible. And so we all, I don't want to say we drowned him out, but he almost just became one of us, I guess, in there. So that was a little easier, but we would get word that they were coming. So it was sort of like, okay, shape up you know, here they come. And so we would know for that sort of small period of time. Um, and we were, I don't want to say told not to interact with them. It just looked really unprofessional if um, I paid attention to them um, and not what was in front of me, if you will. And so I think it was just made really clear to us sort of how we had to be and how we had to interact. And if they asked questions, we were to answer them sort mm-hmm. of a, a situation. Yeah. So you, you ended up going into the field, into some hardship locations and actually talking to some terrorists. Talk a little bit about what it's like to be a woman going into, well, Afghanistan, for example. Um, so for me, um, I would say I was in a Middle Eastern country and it, that was a pivotal point for me. Um, it wasn't a war zone, but it, it was a friendly Middle Eastern country. Um, and I had, I was, I was wearing a hijab. I was dressed in a way that was respectful to that country's culture. And that was a pivotal moment in my life. Um, I had gone into a souk, which is sort of one of the huge marketplaces, um, just to see what it was like. And um, even though obviously I had covered, um, I mean, you can see me, I have, I have blonde hair and, and green eyes and uh, I'm kind of tall, I, I, I stood out. And there were people for, hanging from the trees to try to see me and, and touch my hair and, and see what I was like. And that was the first time in my life that I felt uncomfortable in my own skin and the way that I, I looked at my race. And in a weird way, that was really a good experience for me to have um, because it helped me sort of understand how others might feel. Um, I don't know that when I was talking to individuals in those countries, it was never difficult um, because they were in a position where they had to speak to me. Um, So (laughs) it was never uh, difficult being a female uh, in that position. Um, I would say just in terms of like getting back and forth and driving, obviously a male always had to drive and I had to be covered, but that was just almost out of deference to their culture and customs. Um, The only time it was ever difficult for me, most foreign intelligence services were actually extremely gracious and kind and treated me quite equally. There was only one time where the intelligence service basically treated me like I was a joke and sort of referred to me as as Malibu Barbie, which obviously was offensive to me. But that was the only time. And at that point, my male colleague actually kind of piped up and was said, you need to listen to her. You need to listen to what she has to say. And she's the person who's going to be taking your questions. So there were a lot of really great male colleagues who sort of helped in that situation. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, I think it was in our email communication that um, publishers had a hard time kind of wrapping their heads around, you know, you liking the color pink, maybe liking shopping, concerned about your roots, which I am as well. Um, (laughs) I like the color pink as well. And being of the mind of getting the sons of bitches, right? So being a little hardened. So, I mean, talk a little bit about that. So that's kind, to be honest with you, that was sort of the whole, one of the larger points of my book was that we need to not be judging books by their covers, no matter what they look like. Um, And there's nothing wrong. There's absolutely nothing wrong with wanting to pursue a career in WMD, in defense, in intelligence, in 
law enforcement and being feminine. I don't think we have to take that away from ourselves. And I think when we do, we diminish ourselves as a gender. You know, it's okay to not be a feminine woman. That, that's fine. Uh, however you want to present is fully acceptable. And I think there seems to be this general pervasive ideology that in order to be in one of those careers, you have to look, think, act, and be a certain way. And I think we are taking out an entire subset of the female population when we do that. And we're making it seem that these jobs are not attainable um, to them. I was just uh, talking to my students um, a couple of days ago about this. And they're like, oh, well, we thought you had to be this way to do that. We thought you had to be that way. And to think that maybe they wouldn't have applied because they didn't think that it was okay to be who they were, I think is problematic. And I think more women than not may feel that way. Yeah, you're right. I mean, there's just boxes that, that people are put in. And, um, you know, for a long time, my family wrestled with how can Natasha be interested in these issues? Where, where did this come from? And like trying to understand me. And I'm like, I'm still a girl. I'm just yeah. a girl. I mean, my, my, my handle on Twitter is WMD girl because that was my gamer tag and I was taking out the guys and shooting them in their head. And I want them to know that I, they got shot by a girl. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, yeah, you don't have to like certain things to choose a career in national security. If you are drawn to it, drawn to those issues, it doesn't matter. You know, mm -hmm. you, your passion is in that direction and we need to, you should honor that. And so I'm so glad that you did. I'm so glad that I did. But yeah, there's a lot of confusion out there about who we should be if we've chosen this, this particular career. What I really love about your career is not only did you get to work at the CIA and take down the bad guys, but you worked at the FBI too. So let's talk a little bit about the FBI. Why did you decide to go work at the FBI? Um, so for me, obviously I was working in the WMD section of the CIA and I, I loved it. I, I thoroughly enjoyed what I was doing. Um, but one thing I realized is sort of as I was getting older and as I was maturing, I did not wish a life for myself completely overseas all of the time. And I knew that that was something about the CIA. I mean, that's central to their mission. That was just, it was never going to change. I couldn't change that about them. That's, that's what they did. Um, so it's really hard to leave a place that you love. I, I have nothing negative to say um, about my time there other than at the ripe old age of 25, 26, <laughs> I realized uh, that that wasn't where I saw myself, you know, 10, 15 years down the line. So I decided, you know what, the FBI works stateside. I can work in one location, um, kind of be there more permanently. I'm going to go ahead and apply for a job there because I can still perhaps do what I love um, and be stateside doing it. So that's sort of where I went with that. And so you actually went to Quantico. So talk us a little a bit through the Quantico because there's been a show called Quantico. Um, so what is it really like training to be an agent? <laughs> So I watched two episodes of Quantico and then I just couldn't get past <laughs> anymore. I'm, a lot I'm, of attractive people in Quantico, I have yeah, to say. Definitely a lot of attractive people, probably why I watched the show. Um, but it was obviously, as someone who's gone through the process, like borderline on ridiculousness, um, sort of what they were making them do. Uh, you know, training, there's sort of different sections of it. You have kind of an academic portion that involves forensics, law, accounting, sort of that whole side of things. Then you have their PT testing that you have to do. I believe it's every three or four weeks. I can't, I can't recall for sure. 
Um, you also have firearms training, um, and then you have another section which is more situational about situational awareness, and that's called Hogan's Alley. So mine was 16, 17 weeks, um, so it was sort of divided up by that. Okay, and then um, you became a special agent, and what was your first job? So um, mine was a little unusual. Most new agents don't get assigned to what we call resident agencies, which are smaller agencies run out of the larger headquarters office. So I was out of the LA field office, which is obviously a huge office, but in the Santa Ana Orange County resident agency, which is a smaller um, group. And there I did, uh, I was assigned to the Chinese counterintelligence squad. Sweet. So you went after Chinese mobsters? Is that what you did? So, um, actually, CNN um, ended up running what we did. Um, it's on um, Declassified. I okay. believe there's a show on CNN called Declassified. And about two years ago, it's um, Tai and uh, Chi Mac case um, that was out of that resident agency. And they had taken, one of them was working at a Power Paragon, which was a defense contractor. And they had stole our radar cloaking technology for our nuclear submarines. And we're giving that back to the Chinese, which was... Oh my goodness, my second novel has the Chinese stealing defense technologies. <laughs> Um, and I didn't even know about that one. Um, so I can send you a link. <laughs> awesome. Do that. Yeah. So you, you, you've worked at the CIA, you've worked at the FBI and I want the audience to understand what makes these agencies, how they're different and how they're similar because they have different authorities and mandates. So if you could kind of lay that out for the audience and sure. we'll talk a little bit about their culture. So the CIA is an intelligence gathering organization. That is their charge and they operate outside of the United States. And they are simply gathering intelligence. They are not arresting people. They are not bringing people to trial. They are gathering intelligence. The FBI is a law enforcement organization. So they are sworn law enforcement officers that can arrest people, bring them to trial, and charge them with crimes. And they operate, for the most part, um, within the confines of the United States, unless it's an American citizen overseas. Yes, and so part of the 9-11 Commission, or one of the things that happened after the 9-11 Commission was the FBI took on more, or they took more initiative to be also an intelligence agency that became more proactive in, in doing that. Um, uh, but they obviously have different authority, as you pointed out, domestic for FBI, foreign for CIA. So you cannot have foreign um, CIA uh, folks running around here doing things with American citizens, right? Correct. <laughs> um, so why don't you talk about the culture of the two agencies a little bit? What's it like inside those agencies? Um, where do I begin? Uh, the CIA was, for me, again, I can only speak about myself, um, a very equitable place to work. Um, they didn't care if I was male, female, young, old. It really didn't matter if this is what you held the ticket on. You were the one going to the war zone. You were the one talking to these people. Um, Everyone had a lot of mutual respect for each other. Um, you know, we had uh, physicists in our group. We had people with P uh, PhDs in uh, nuclear engineering and things like that. And everyone respected everyone. Um, everyone gave opportunities to everyone. And I really felt like we really were in competition with each other. It was sort of, we all had the singular mission to so fix this and do it together and do it correctly. Um, at the FBI, um, I would say that it was very much a cu culture of sort of 
the good old boys network, if you will. Um, and if you didn't fit into that or weren't willing to try to fit into that, uh, they were not going to make your, you feel very comfortable about being there. Um, when I was at the um, CIA, obviously the CIA, even though we're one organization, we do work with members of various members of the intelligence community, NSA, DOD, FBI. We never really wasted our time speaking ill about these other agencies. It just wasn't something we did. We were all here together. The FBI, I would say almost on a daily basis, um, had really negative things to say um, about the CIA. It was a sort of contention for me, even at the academy, being from the CIA. People did not like that and were constantly questioning it all the time. Um, and it was just such an acrimonious environment, such a different environment. I, I don't know if it's because of the two missions being completely different. It attracts different kinds of people. I'm, I'm not sure. I think so. I think, um, you know, defense, for example, defense and State Department are very different culturally. I could never work at the State Department because I'm just too blunt. And I don't see a lot of point in all the niceties, the sugaring. Um, you and I both. I know, right? In defense, I'm like, hey, it's like this. Just yeah. do it. Right. Yeah. And I don't have to go, Hey, how are you doing? How sunny? Right. Yeah. Okay. Can you do this? Thank you. <laughs> um, just not my style. It's just like a waste of time. So there are, and, and, and one of the reasons state department is the way it is, is because there's a lot of talking. They do a lot of talking. They do a lot of engagement and diplomacy. The department of defense moves shit around the globe. We move, you know, real large equipment, logistics, people, and then we're in the business of killing as opposed to, Sorry, sorry, everybody, as opposed to um, being friends with other people. So it's, it's, it's definitely a different culture. Um, um, and so I actually love the FBI. I wanted to work at the FBI for a long time. Um, there's the WMB directorate there. And um, I could have I gotten a job there. But I kind of got the sense that there was um, a bit of a divide between the guns and the people that don't carry guns. So the law enforcement officers, the special agents, and the subject matter experts like myself in the intelligence branch, um, that there, there was more prestige associated to carrying a gun. That's interesting. I guess I was, I carried a gun obviously mm -hmm. when I was there, so I was in a different um, capacity, but I could definitely see that. Like I said at CIA, all branches were viewed as equal. And I think us on the op side, I sat with people who are on the intelligence side right next to me. At the FBI, they're not even in the same like locations physically. So there's that separation right there. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea, you know, you didn't go to Quantico, you don't know what it's like, you can't. And so I think I could understand what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so um, your book, it's called The Unexpected Spy. It's coming out um, February 25th. I noticed there's a lot of black in here and you mentioned redacted. Oh. So this is redacted for real by the CIA. Is that right? Correct. Oh no, this wasn't like a ploy on my this is awesome. I was like, oh, I really want to read that. <laughs> black. Um, wait, wait. When they first returned it back to me, there were entire chapters that were black. So we had to go back and forth. <laughs> yeah, you can't exactly have an entire book that's correct. <laughs> so at some, yeah, at some point you were working at the FBI and you decided you wanted to be a teacher after all. And so you went to school for that? Mm -hmm. um, I left the FBI and I went and got my master's um, in education. And I've been a teacher ever since. All right. And how's that going? I mean, what is your current focus and passion in the classroom? Obviously, I love being a teacher. Um, it's incredible. And I think I've really found my niche or calling um, at, here at, in all-girls school. Uh, I've worked in public schools before, obviously with mixed genders. Um, but the school I teach at now is an all-girls school. And I, I teach 11th and 12th grade um, 
I teach two classes on American history, but then the rest of the classes that I teach are all on foreign policy, national security, and terrorism. And what's been really great about that is to see that some of my former students uh, now work at the CIA, at the FBI, at the State Department, at the Department of Defense. And I really think that we need to get more females into these careers. It's, in my opinion, it's all about sort of changing the perception that surrounds them. Um, and even if the girls don't go into these careers, um, they are leaving my class with a knowledge about the world that they didn't have before. Um, and I'll continue to get, you know, text messages, emails from them um, asking me, uh, talk to me about Ukraine, Mrs. Walder. Um, I'm confused. And that makes my heart so happy, you know, when they're a junior in college and they're still interested. Um, and I feel like I've done my job sort of with them and keeping them engaged. Well, I'm, I'm actually jealous. Um, I think that's uh, such a wonderful um, opportunity to shape the, the next generation. And I believe that it really should happen in high school. Um, we are old enough in high school to care about the world outside of us and to know that national security is in our interests, that we need to care about it. Um, so congratulations on doing that and finally, you know, kind of getting back to your spot. But what cool stories you can tell. So I hear that there's a TV show in the works. I'm wondering, can you tell us something about that? Um, so yes, uh, Calamity Jane, which is Ellen Pompeo's production company, um, sort of bought the rights to my story, if you will, to adapt it into a TV show. And uh, they've been really great uh, to work with. Um, been very positive and very encouraging sort of about it. Um, for them, uh, it's about sort of taking my personality and sort of what I did and adapting it more to today. I think they're sort of kind of trying to go in, in that direction. So I'm, I'm not sure when it will be out. I'm less, I guess, intimately involved in that than I am obviously in my book simply because I'm not a TV sure. Sure. Um, one of my favorite shows was Covert Affairs. I don't know if you ever saw that show. I never saw it, but I've heard of the show. Oh my goodness. I loved it so much. And then it ended and I was so sad. So I'll be really happy when this, and I loved Alias. I loved Alias too. So this will, this will um, feed, feed that, that um, strong female protagonist kicking butt. I hope, I hope you have you kicking butt, um, you know, even though maybe you didn't. <laughs> All right. So where can the audience find out more about you? Um, they can go to my website, tracywalder.com, or uh, they can follow me on Twitter uh, at Tracy underscore Walder, um, or you can buy my book. Excellent. And please do that. So I'm halfway through and I can't wait to finish reading it. And um, so a couple of things for one, you know, one word that describes it for me is captivating. What's so amazing about this book, everyone, listen, is that I feel like I could be you. And, you know, I, I feel like I'm in your shoes and I feel like I'm going through those experiences and I'm experiencing them as if, and, and I didn't. So you had all the pain and suffering, but I get to experience it vicariously through you. So everyone go buy a copy of her book. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and for your time today. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate this has been a great experience. Thanks for listening to the Authors of Mass Destruction podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review. You can also support my time in producing the show with Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash Natasha Bajma. For more information about the podcast, go to www.authorsofmassdestruction.com. See you next week.